This time on Poll Hub, from a potential rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump to Americans' views on Congress, we break down the results of our latest national poll with NPR and the PBS NewsHour. Then, ch-ch-ch-changes. Forgive me, David Bowie. We're getting a bit introspective in analyzing how pollsters have changed the way they contact people. CNN's Ariel Edwards-Levy is here to tackle that meaty topic. Then Americans are having a love affair with the Super Bowl. We explain in Lee's Fun Fact this week. This is Pull Up. Let's get started. And hi, everyone. Welcome to Pull Hub. I'm Mary Griffith. I'm Barbara Carvalho. And I'm Lee Marinkoff. Well, surprise, surprise, we have a new poll out with our national polling partners, NPR and the PBS NewsHour. And the focus, of course, is the 2024 general election. So let's dive right in with some numbers. And then, Lee, I'll uh, hand it over to you for some analysis right off the top. So when we take a look at a potential rematch between President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump among registered voters, the two are very competitive. Joe Biden receives 48 percent to 47 percent for Donald Trump. When we take a look at independent voters, Trump receives 50% to 42% for Biden. Now, this is a figure that I know is near and dear to Lee's heart. We take a look at voters who have an unfavorable view of both Biden and Trump. Biden has a 4% edge. So, Lee, just looking at the initial top line itself, what are we seeing in this rematch between Trump and Biden? Well, you know, one of the things that's nice, just from a statistical standpoint, which we'll talk about with Aria Levy coming up, is that, you know, this is a potential rematch. We have a data set that looks kind of interesting. So if we compare what went on to what's going on now between Biden and Trump, we get a little more insight along the way than we might if it was different candidates. So that having been said, we're seeing a close race. Anybody who says, and in social media, you see this all the time, why one of them is a shoe and in the other is a disaster, and that tends to be more politically induced than anything else. But we're seeing in this a lot of interesting stuff. One thing is one of the barometers of a incumbent, in this case, Joe Biden, being reelected uh, is what his approval rating is. And although his approval rating has been consistently around 40% in almost all of the polls, there's a group of people who somewhat disapprove of him, but they dislike former President Trump so much that they will vote for Biden as a lesser of two evils. And against Donald Trump, 38% of the people who say they somewhat disapprove of Joe Biden's performance as president say they're going to vote for him anyway. And that's a very unusual kind of thing because you have two presidents, as you said, whose approval, whose favorabilities are both upside down. Yeah, but things change a little bit if Donald Trump were to be convicted of a crime bar. Yeah, I mean, we we see some weakening of his support there, but it's not really among his Republican base. We see a little bit of flippage. Statistically, I'm not quite sure that is a statistical difference, but we see some change in the numbers. But I think what changes for Donald Trump is his support among independents, who gen- particularly those who generally lean towards voting Republican. Now, that said, Joe Biden also is having a tough time uh, with independence. And we see that, you know, things are kind of scrambled up a little bit between the candidates, even though there is a rematch. President Biden right now, I think, is having a difficult time 
energizing his base and the enthusiasm among his base. Yes, Democrat people who identify as Democrats are, you know, very likely and most will vote for again for President Biden. But, you know, you we mentioned the rematch and the need for there to be energy and the need for people to feel that it's worthwhile to go and vote. And in in most contests, it's either that you really, really, really like the person you're voting for, or you really, really, really hate the person you're, you know, you're voting against. And so right now, Trump has both of those things. He has a base that is incredibly supportive, and he has a Democratic base that that does not that does not like him and has a very unfavorable impression of him. But then there there are these folks that may vote Democratic. They generally identify themselves as independents. And those are younger people. Those generally tend to be Latinos. You mentioned the pre- the president's approval rating among those between 18 and 29 is 30%. Among Latinos on immigration, it's 27%. So um, there's, a, there's really a lot of dissonance in the Biden coalition. Uh, objectively, though, and I know I, I want to toss this to Mary because I've heard you talk about this and I want you to wax in on this, weigh in on this one right now. We have a situation where the economy is objectively getting better. Fox News is saying the economy is getting better. What is it about Joe Biden that, or our politics that you can have an improvement in the objective numbers, but not a carryover into his approval rating or his vote choice? You know, Lee, I think it always comes back to what we tend to focus on in class with our students, which is our politics are very baked in right now. And people's perceptions just politically are so far apart on the political spectrum that a lot of their views are are very much baked in. Also, I think from the White House, from a perspective, a communications perspective, the Biden camp is having a really difficult time getting their point across, getting their message across, really punching through in terms of their messaging and their strategy of what is going well in the country as opposed to what is dividing us. I think it's also interesting that the poll went into issues. And one of the values of a public poll like we do or other public polls is that you can always get insight into what the campaigns are doing based on what the polling says. And so if you want to get what the number one issue among Democrats is, well, what's Biden talking about? Preserving democracy. And if you want to know what the number one issue among Republicans, it's immigration. No surprise they're both following their own pathways. Well, I was just also going to ask Mary, as we're you know looking down the line on this, we're seeing improvement in the economy. But as Lee just pointed out, the economy doesn't make the top issue. Um, and in a sense, as things tend to improve, they actually end up being of less value and less importance to voters. So... Um, you know, Joe Biden has a tough coalition to keep together. How do these issues kind of figure in how that messaging can improve? Well, I think they just have to keep pushing through in terms of what in terms if what those numbers are saying, what they mean for the American public. I mean, look, Joe Biden is very relatable. You know, it's one thing that he's prided himself on as being the average Joe. I mean, you know, pun intended here. 
and that I need to be able to make those um, so-called kitchen table issues important to Americans and show that they are things are getting better, that there is a light at the end of that proverbial tunnel. But one thing I do want, I know we're a little short on time, I do want to bring to the two of you is we didn't just ask about the potential rematch between Biden and Trump. We asked about, you know, there is another Republican who is still in the race with Nikki Haley. And so what are we seeing there? I mean, beyond just the numbers, well, looking at the numbers themselves, it's again, it's a competitive race. So I have to ask, is this sort of an issue of the party of Trump? I mean, if this were another time or another era for Nikki Haley, could this be her time? No, the only time I think Nikki Haley could have scored points if she looked like she was 10 points ahead of Joe Biden in a head-to-head matchup and Donald Trump was losing by 10 points. Then her attraction for electability, that was her big selling point. It hasn't really materialized in Iowa, New Hampshire, but the Nevada uh, over yesterday or day before, um, where she was beaten by none of the above. Probably not the best imaging for a candidate, but I think she's just got you know a very faint pulse at this point. And the presumptive nominee is Donald Trump on the Republican side, and it's against Joe Biden. Yeah, and I agree with Lee there. I think at one point, you know, there was a time where. You know, she was using the issue of electability, but I think that the GOP rank and, rank and file feel that they went that way in a past decade, voting for someone who they thought would be able to oust the uh, Democratic incumbent, and they didn't. And I think that, especially when you look at these first couple of primaries that we have had, or the Iowa caucus as well, the turnout among Republicans in those states is very, very low. You're getting the motivated, active voter, which is often the case in primaries and caucuses, but even, I think, more so now. And I think the Trump campaign has uh, been able to demonize Nikki Haley enough in, in GOP terms to make it a really tough road And, for and she hasn't been that engaging a candidate. I just want to end on one thing that I found surprising in this poll. And, you know, we've been watching the Congress having a lot of problems moving ahead, passing legislation, getting a bipartisan coalition together. That's been in the news all over the place, and especially in the last week. But 72% of Americans tell us that they think the political system can work, and that's the members of Congress who are the problem. In other words, they don't want to throw out the baby with the wash here. It's the members not the system that people think are not performing up to speed. Doesn't mean they're going to throw all the incumbents out, but it's a real number of people, both Democrats and Republicans, for different reasons and take different sides as to who's to blame. Bottom line, they think it's the members, not the system itself. And I thought that was kind of surprising. Well, we're never ones to stray or to avoid pollster or polling controversy. So we're going to hearken back for a second to election 2016, which certainly gave us pollsters a lot to talk about. But a lot has also changed since the 2016 election. In fact, data from Pew Research shows that many pollsters have changed their approach. And you would probably think, okay, it's about time. But no, it's not exactly what you think. Ariel Edwards-Levy, editor of Polling and Elections and Analytics, at CNN is here to join us and to have us make sense of what has been happening in polling 
over almost the last decade. Welcome, Ariel. So glad to have you. I think you have been a welcome guest many times on the uh, Whole Hub Podcast. And thank you so much for having me back. And of course, we always all just love your puns and your writings. And Lee often comes into the office, sometimes claiming there is all, but own. then but then we all know how he became so clever because he was, yeah. he was, my, he was reading. My, you. my jokes are corny, not clever. It's a, there's a difference. <laughs> I think I'll have to swap and just claim that you came up with my jokes and blame them on you because I think people in the office may be tired of me saying <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, no. never. You, you have oh, a following. Never. You have a fan absolutely. club and a following. Yes, absolutely. So tell me about what's been going on in our industry. And then we can talk a little bit about why. Let me put yeah. some numbers to this. Oh, okay. 61% of the pollsters who conducted and publicly released national surveys in both 2016 and in 2022 used methods in 2022 that differed from what they used in 2016. So yes, Ariel, please. It's not necessarily uh, what people think, because um, certainly 2016 was a lot about what we discussed in polling for quite a bit. But so what changed? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing that I'll do is I'll say that these numbers are only looking at one very specific facet of polling, which is how did you reach the people you surveyed? So it's not even talking about how did you weight your results? It's not talking about where did you go out to find these people necessarily, all of which have also seen dramatic changes over the past few years. This is just how did you contact these people? And even in that, we have seen this dramatic shift where, as you said, the majority of pollsters are not doing the same thing that they were doing, you know, even two election cycles ago. And what's been fascinating to me is seeing the way the industry has adapted, because I think there's still this public image that when you're conducting a poll, you're calling a landline phone and somebody's picking up their landline phone and answering the questions that somebody's asking them. And they're going, well, who's doing that anymore? And the answer is very few people, because Pollsters, media pollsters, academic pollsters, campaign pollsters are still calling people up. Pretty much everybody is calling cell phones at this point. People are calling using voter files rather than just randomly dialing numbers. And increasingly, people are looking to other methods, whether that's going online, whether that's using the mail to actually have people reach out and get an envelope or a postcard. And I really think it's adapting to the fact that the way that people have communicated have changed so much in this past time. And for reasons of keeping up with that, because of obviously, you know, high profile election issues, because of just costs and just to keep up with where the public is, I think the industry has really yeah. seen some dramatic changes over the last few years. Yeah. So let's just get a little geeky for a second, because you did mention a couple of things and that this research really focused on data collection itself. So what has changed regarding data collection and why? Because I think the first thing that comes to mind, well, yeah, pollsters better change what they do from 2016 because there was all that confusion about a number of the forecasters forecasting Hillary Clinton at that time by, you know, what's seen as wide margins rather than just lower probability. What has been going on for us in the industry? Because we're certainly not folks that haven't had to adapt to technology. Yeah. And to actually, you know, um, change a little bit of what I said there, you know, I think this is looking at, like I said, how people are contacted, but it also is to some extent looking at where you get those people, how you choose a phone number, how you choose where you find someone. But I think what we really have seen is that 
for a long time, it was there is one way to conduct a poll. And it was easy to say, this is the way that you should do it. And if people are doing this, we sort of have a general idea that they're doing the right thing. And it will probably come back with a number that's meaningful and looks like other people's. There are now so many ways to do a poll. And I think there are certainly wrong ways to do it, but there's no one singular right way. And I think that's healthy for the industry and it helps us keep up with all these changes, but it does make it more difficult than ever to really be a discerning consumer of polling data and to figure out sort of what are these approaches. But fundamentally, all of these are trying to do the same thing, which is you're still trying to reach a broad sample of the public who, you know, across all demographic lines, all parts of the country, you're trying to find those people and get them to talk to you about how they feel about political issues, how they feel about the country. But it's whether you're getting that by calling them, by text texting them, by, you know, again, sending them a letter, by having them sign up for a survey. And I think increasingly what we're seeing, and I know we do the, some of this in our polling at CNN, and I know that you've worked with this, is that we use multiple methods because there's no one way that you can reach everybody. I am, of course, fascinated by what other folks are doing. And I think one of the key things we do as a community is there's a lot of transparency, or at least we encourage transparency because that is the way an industry moves forward and learns. How much difficulty have you encountered evaluating what you do and also then being able to judge all these other numbers that we're seeing, which sometimes are all over the place, the Quinnipiac NBC numbers that was like 10 or 11 points different between Biden and Trump. How do you make heads or tails of any of this? I mean, I will say that, you know, I think all of the organizations you've talked to are ones that have been very good about providing transparency and talking about the different methods they're using. I think that one thing I've always said is that Sometimes what polls tell you is that there's a lot of uncertainty happening. And that's a really valuable thing. And I think we should listen when polls tell us that. When you have results that are all over the place, a lot of the times, and you know, I don't think it's that all over the place. There are margins of error. I think in yep. general, polling has shown a fairly close hypothetical race shaping up yep. right now between Biden and Trump. I think you've seen the majority of numbers showing recently very close race or possibly a slight edge toward Trump. But I think what the numbers are telling you right now is that this is not completely locked in. There are a lot of people who don't love the idea of this matchup or are not strongly committed yet. We're still very early in the race. People have not really tuned in. And I think that's reflected in what you're seeing in these numbers. And I think sometimes when you see that variation, just the fact of that variation can tell you something about how locked in we are, which again, this early in an election cycle before, you know, the nominations are completely secured is not very. Yeah, I should correct myself and say in class, I will talk about the interesting element about how close polls tend to be, not the wide variation, because the narrative is so important. And as you say, that is the narrative right now where we are, where we're going to be in six months is anybody's guess. Well, I think you make a really good point, Ariel, that the polling community hasn't really decided or found its way to the best way to poll public opinion. But we do recognize when polls are not good or are not going through the best efforts in terms of protocols and methods. 
Could you provide a little insight into some of those things that our listeners and folks should really, you know, check out that can kind of give them a heads up that this is a red flag and this poll may not be worth considering? I mean, I think the basic principle I operate by is that any pollster who is serious and rigorous about their work, if you ask them, so what did you do to get these numbers, will be happy to talk your ear off about it. And so people who are not providing information, who are not explaining to you where they got the sample, they got how they're weighting it, what they're benchmarking to, what their concerns are, you know, people should be making that data available. And, you know, if you look at the methodology statements out there for folks who take this seriously, I think you get a sense of what you should be looking for, which is just transparency about the fact that no data is perfect. This is a difficult industry. What are the steps they are taking to make this representative? And I think, you know, obviously there is no one perfect answer and that makes it difficult because you can't say, oh, this poll is definitely right or definitely wrong. But I think there's definitely a minimum barrier of transparency. And that's what we look for when we're evaluating polls. So if you can't find the methodology related to the numbers that are being uh, put out publicly, you should probably just move on. Yep. Yeah. I would just add track record and familiarity because elections bring into the arena new organizations sometimes, which are temporary and very politically focused. And that's probably a dangerous thing if you're going to depend on that for accuracy and precision. But organizations you know, like yours, like ours, and like a lot of others that have been kicking the tires for a long time are a safer bet, not because it guarantees accuracy, but it guarantees a certain level of effort and commitment to being as precise as possible. But you know, like you say, it's a moving target. We don't necessarily know where it's going to be in six months, and people have to Well, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I was going to ask Ariel whether she could use her crystal ball for a moment and kind of talk about how pollsters are likely to be polling general election 2024 as we're kind of moving past this primary season. I mean, as we always say, polls are snapshots and not predictions. And I've learned my lesson about, you know, (laughs) trying to look into the future. Um, I think, you know, that. Everybody is going to take on the lessons from past cycles, but also hopefully try to avoid fighting the battle of the last election because every election has its own challenges and its own sort of unique character. And, you know, two things I'm looking at this election are one, likely voter modeling, you know, assuming Mm -hmm. that it's, you know, as seems like it might be likely a rematch, who's going to turn out, how, what are the best ways that we can find to figure out who are going to be the people who are actually going to cast their ballot. I also think that it's going to be fascinating to see how pollsters measure the strength of third party or independent candidates, which is, you know, very difficult and can be overstated sometimes in polling. And I think that that those are two challenges that we will be looking ahead to. But, you know, again, We'll see how things shape up. And I think it's very early in the cycle to even know what the specific challenges we all face are going to be. Well, those are certainly two very important ones. Thank you so much, Ariel. It's it's always a pleasure to chat with you and to listen to you. And we look forward to more of your puns and twists and turns as we go through this. And insights. She'd like to be known for that, too. Well, it's wonderful talking to you both. Thank you so much for having me on. 
Okay, so now we get to the part where uh, the fun fact emerges onto our agenda, and there's a lot of things going on in the lives of us and Americans in the next couple weeks and what they are, the Super Bowl and Valentine's Day. So we said, which one do you get more excited about? A legitimate question to ask Americans. And I think the results were kind of interesting. 48% of Americans, not much different than it was last year, say the Super Bowl is what really drives them. 37% say Valentine's Day. So Super Bowl edges out Valentine's Day. Uh, and I don't well, know. Well, it's more than people... an edge. If you were a political candidate at winning, you know, 48 to 37, you wouldn't exactly call that an edge, would you? No, but I, I solve the problem this way. I, I make Nancy watch the Super Bowl. So I, I sort of combined relationships with football. And that way I don't have to be as adamant about the Valentine's Day thing, I think. How about you guys? I think I've shared this before with our listeners. So forgive me. But actually, I met my husband at a Super Bowl party. And our first date was the day before Valentine's Day. So there's a little bit of overlap there. But for me, it's hands down the Super Bowl. I love everything about the Super Bowl. I love the food. I love the excitement. I love getting together with family and friends. So for me, there's no question. I was really, well, it's not that I was surprised by the results because we have been asking this the last couple of years with similar results. But if we hearken back to the January of 2007, when this question was first asked by Fox News, at that time, the Super Bowl lost out to Valentine's Day. The Super Bowl only had 36% of Americans thinking that was tough and 42% choosing Valentine's Day. Now, I don't know who was in the room at that time because we were certainly uh, using landlines uh, more than we were using cell phones, texting, and other means of data collection. And so maybe the privacy has changed people's opinions. But there's still, there is still a gender. There's still a gender gap with men looking forward more to the, to the Super Bowl and just a slight edge of women choosing Valentine's Day over the Super Bowl. But I think in general, what we've seen over this last decade or so is that there has been an overall increase in viewership not just for the NFL in general, but certainly the Super Bowl as well. And I believe Nielsen, you know, who has done the ratings for this from way back when, it, I don't was it even a Super Bowl back in 67? Was that the first there Super was, Bowl? There was a, no, there was a championship game uh, okay. in 67, uh, which, uh, as I recall, was between the Green Bay Packers and... I think it was the Oakland Raiders. The next year was the Kansas City Chiefs. Might sound familiar. I think it was the Raiders and then the Chiefs. Basically, they characterized the Super Bowl as the most watched broadcast in the U.S. Mm -hmm. every single year. So that's quite a record. Why don't we bring in Athen? Athen, what do you think? Will you be watching the Super Bowl this year? Um, well, I'm going to be honest. I didn't realize it was this weekend until today. So I am not huge on football. So I would say on this, I'm the opposite. I would say Valentine's Day is what I'm looking more forward to. And this is exactly why Jay did not join us today. He is always up on the news. And if the Super Bowl is the headline, Jay will certainly know all about it. But I don't think he is necessarily a fan. So hopefully 
we'll put together a uh, fun factly uh, next week that try that to accommodate will be a, more amenable. To. I, I would close with uh, just a quick mention. We can't talk about football and Valentine's Day without talking about America's couple right now, and that is on um, this survey. Oh, less than one percent volunteered both football and the Super Bowl and Valentine's Day is the answer. However, I think if we asked Taylor Swift and the tight end of the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, her beau, uh, what they would like, they'd say both because they're combining the Super Bowl and Valentine's Day. Oh. Isn't that sweet? Oh, very nice. So romantic of you, Lee. That'll do it for Poll Hub this week. Poll Hub is produced by the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. The Poll Hub team includes Athen Hollis and Rebecca Hendricks. If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you'd like to learn more about polling and survey science, check out the Marist Poll Academy, our free online learning portal. If you have questions for us, tweet them at us at Maris Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub. And with any luck, it'll cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it and the latest episode will be ready for you and your podcasting app as soon as it's released. We'll, we'll see, see you next time. time. It's